Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to an election special New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'll be talking to Jason Cowley and George Eaton about Englishness, Scottishness and whether or not the SNP really are as scary as the Tories claim they are. Then Stephen Bush, Harry Lambert and I will be reviewing the latest polls and working out which of the seats we really need to watch. I'm joined by our editor, Jason Cowley, and our political editor, George Eaton, to discuss the week in politics. George, I'm going to start with you, first of all, which is the theme of the campaign really for the last couple of days, although Labour have been plugging away at NHS week, has been these uh, Tory attacks on the idea that, you know, the kind of, the Scots are coming. Mm. Um, Are they effective? Are they cutting through, first of all? Uh, Well, candidates from all parties say that this is being raised unprompted by voters um, on the doorstep and it has entered popular conversation. Um, I don't think it's going to be um, a big election theme for most voters, but the key for the Tories at this stage is to win over the voters they need to remain in power. And there are two groups in particular who they think this message will prove effective. The first are those who voted for them in 2010 but have defected to UKIP. The second are those who support the Lib Dems in the southern, southwest marginals that the Tories hope to take. Um, They think the message that uh, the SNP would have the whip hand over Labour, that Miliband would have to continually capitulate to the nationalist demands, is one that will scare them enough um, to persuade them to vote vote Conservative. And Jason, do you buy this idea, or do you think voters will buy this idea, that the SNP are sort of purely a wrecking party? They're going to come to Westminster purely to make everything as difficult as possible. I think um, Labour are, are rightly sceptical of the SNP. On the one hand, Nicola Sturgeon, their very accomplished leader, is offering the hand of friendship mm. to Labour in England while systematically destroying Labour in Scotland. And they're bitter enemies. They've been fighting each other for decades, the SNP and Labour. Will the, will the SNP be there to wreck? I think in the short term, they would support a minority Labour government to get things through a Queen's speech, maybe a budget. But what some Labour shadow cabinet members are saying to me is that they're gaming the possibility that the Scots would seek to create or the the SNP would seek to create divisions ahead of the 2016 Scottish election. But that's also an interesting question from looked at from the other perspective, isn't it? The idea that Cameron is playing a very short term advantage by saying England and Scotland are very different. We wouldn't want to be ruled from Scotland. But he's already slightly conceded a unionist argument there, don't you think, Jason? I think there is it, it is it is it is harder to see how the union can stay together when you get that kind of rhetoric coming from. I the absolutely Tories. agree. I, 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 
I mean, the union seems more under threat now than it did um, ahead of the referendum last year. And it's almost as if at times Cameron is kind of demonising the SNP, delegitimising them, but also portraying them in some way other as hostile to Britain, to England, to indeed Scotland. But, you know, here's a great uprising of Scot the Scottish people here. 45% voted for independence, all of whom, if not more, have gone across now to the SNP. And this is a powerful anti-unionist force coming to Westminster. And George, this is a very difficult scenario for Labour too, isn't it? Because they're fighting a ground campaign in Scotland against the SNP, whilst at the same time everybody suspects the only way they could govern would be with the SNP. Mm. Well, their message has to be, as Ed Miliband said in last week's TV debate, that if you vote SNP, you are gambling on the removal of a Conservative government. You're not guaranteeing it. Because if Labour do lose most of their 40 Scottish MPs to the Nationalists, and it looks as if they will, then it does make it easier for David Cameron to remain Prime Minister with the support of the Lib Dems and, and the DUP, if necessary. Um, but it's, uh, it, I mean, it's, a, it's a huge, huge problem for Labour is that the SNP are now are seen, and, and the Conservatives framing aids them, as the only true representatives of Scotland. Um, so every, and nothing sticks to them. Everything seems to bounce off. So they've attacked Nicola Sturgeon over the alleged memo. They've attacked them over their promise of full fiscal autonomy, which would lead to a, an eight billion black hole. Uh, they've attacked them over the collapse of the oil George, price. Isn't that, isn't that partly the, the problem with the devolution settlement as it is, in the sense that the SNP can claim praise for its successes in Scotland and any failures and weaknesses can be blamed on Westminster? So it's yeah. a kind of win-win, isn't it, for the Scots yeah, at the absolutely. moment? Absolutely. I mean, they are in this unique position of both being um, a party of, of in government, um, but also an insurgent party. And they're pulling that combination off uh, very well at the moment. And, of course, the issue is always that Scotland is able to spend far more than it has to raise. Um, and that's why some Conservatives have long argued, actually, that uh, the one thing which would undermine the Nationalists is greater or full fiscal autonomy because they would be forced to raise rather than just spend. Well, the IFS have come out, haven't they, and said that there's a, there, is a, there is, as we've long suspected, yeah. a kind of black hole in the, in the deficit reduction if you don't have the Barnet formula delivering higher public spending in Scotland. Sorry, Jason, you were going to say something. No, but Helen, something that's worth considering is that England and Scotland are just growing ever, ever further apart. I mean, they're fundamentally different now. I mean, Scotland seems to be more egalitarian, more left-wing even, Labour, um, England is a, is a more entrepreneurial, um, certainly the south of England is more entrepreneurial, pro-business, much more interested in, in wealth creation. And the two countries, you know, I visit Scotland a lot. My closest friend teaches at Glasgow University. And you get a sense of when you go to Scotland now, you're going to a different country. The intelligentsia, the writers, the artists, the poets, the commentators, many academics, m most of whom are now supporters of independence they're not necessarily SNP supporters but they support independence they feel fundamentally that England is not the country that they once knew it to be I mean is, is that fair the differences are now too great to hold the union together but they are also enabled exclusively by the union still being together aren't they I mean I think Alex Salmond has said that if if he expected after independence there would be a kind of complete political realignment in Scotland you would get an opposition party again that was that would emerge again you can't and, and you would expect to see again at some sort of right wing party. yes you would especially as the SNP were once you know there were I mean Salmon himself is a, is a is a tax cutter some people have called him a neoliberal by by instinct or and there were the old tartan Tories 
that were absorbed by the SNP. And it was a very peculiar coalition at one time. It's now moved to the left and it's certainly positioning mm. itself to the left of Labour. And in an independent Scotland, there would certainly be the emergence of a right of centre opposition to the SNP. Mm. Um, and George, finally, we haven't spoken that much particularly about uh, Labour this week specifically. They are in surprisingly good spirits, I think, given mostly the increasing personal ratings of, of Ed Miliband. So they are. I mean, they even some shadow cabinet members confess that the campaign's gone far better than they, they dared to hope because the conservative onslaught on, on Ed Miliband and on the party's economic credibility hasn't had the impact that the Tories expected. Um, they're focusing on the NHS this week. They're returning to their core strengths after Miliband's uh, focus on fiscal responsibility at the manifesto launch and then with a speech on immigration, which is often and is a strong card for them because national polls regularly show that the NHS is the top issue for voters, uh, ranking above the economy and, and immigration in some cases. Uh, but they have been losing what uh, strategists call the air war this week, the the battle for dominance of uh, broadcast media simply because they've the, the TV stations have given greater prominence to the Tories SNP attack and so it's too early to say whether that will um, affect the shift that the Tories badly need at this stage in the campaign but it's it's um, discomforted Labour because for the first time they feel as if they're struggling to get their message across. Jason? The, I think the Labour campaign has been fine and Miliband, I mean Miliband um, for the criticisms of him, um, some of them made by me, um, you know, it's, it's never as bad as, as some people mm. wish to believe. But George, they haven't really moved. I mean, they, they got 29% in 2010, a disastrous result for Labour. They've essentially now around 32, 33 in the polls. Mm. So in effect, well, some, have, some have them on 35. Yeah, but, but they've sucked up a few disaffected Lib Dems. Mm. Miliband's personal ratings have ticked up a little bit, but they're still roughly where William Hague's and Ian Duncan Smith's yeah. poll ratings were. In other words, they're terrible. <laughs> yeah. um, so, and also, mm. here's a party that cannot win a majority. We mm. know that. They're, they're get, at best, they can be a minority government. In the circumstances, I, I've long believed they ought to have won a majority with the right mm. split, historically split. But I think, I think that's very interesting, because I think at least you can see in the outlines of Labour's problems what the answers to those problems would be. I think the, the, the thing has always been looking at the Conservatives, thinking... What on earth are you going to to do? I mean, you can imagine Labour could fight back in Scotland. I mean, I know it would take years mm. now after such a historic uh, change there. But can the Conservatives ever win in Scotland again? Can the Conservatives win in Wales again? I mean, these are, you know... Well, and, the Conservatives uh, have representation. They have seats in Wales. In Scotland, no, they've been decisively defeated in Scotland. They're, ne they're never coming back there. Despite at present having an extremely accomplished mm. leader in Ruth Davidson. No, I, they, they've ceased to be a national party, by which I mean they can no longer represent the British nation. Labour potentially could, but wow, they're in trouble in Scotland. Well, we'll come back to all of this, I'm sure, in future weeks. But for now, I'll say thank you to Jason and George. I'm joined by Harry Lambert, editor of May 2015, and Staggers editor Stephen Bush to talk about... The election, more of the election. Um, Harry, first of all, I'm going to start about. with you. Yeah, um, oh, we're going to talk about Miliband fandom, actually, first. Uh, I know you've got a lot of thoughts on that. No, before that, let's talk about um, May 2015's prediction this week, that almost all the scenarios that you can see, it's now looking most likely that you think Ed Miliband is going to be Prime Minister. Yes, well, why? why? Well, indeed. Uh, it's not that Cameron can't do it. It's that he has to um, 
overcome many obstacles along the way. Uh, there are really the simple way of putting this is there are about twenty key seats which the Tories currently hold and Labour and the Tories are battling over. And for Cameron to survive after May seventh, he's going to have to win almost every single one of these seats. Not because he won't otherwise win the most seats in the House of Commons, but because he needs to get to 323 to have an effective majority. And in order to do so, he needs to win considerably more seats than Labour. Which is interesting, because actually the one thing that we haven't talked about a huge amount in this election are the Labour-Tory marginals. The kind of consensus view is there's been very little traffic in voters between the two main parties. People have generally bled away from the centre to to minor parties. So tell us, uh, give us a couple of those seats that we should be looking at. Right, so the really key seats are places like Amber Valley and Peterborough and Stafford. Uh, and there's a full list which we're going to have on May2015.com later today. But just to explain if you're confused as to how all these Tory seats could be going to the Labour Party. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If Labour are doing such a bad job of winning over Tory 2010 voters, what the polls show is that things are very close nationally. Both the parties are getting around 34%. But in 2010, the Tories beat Labour by about 8 points. So therefore, we'd expect a whole bunch of Tory-held seats to swing to the Labour Party. The problem for Cameron is that because of the SNP and because of the mass to do with the other parties, he needs to hold a bigger proportion of these seats. So basically, he, he's his only option for coalition partners are Lib Dems and the DUP, both of whom will end up with we think probably the Lib Dems would be lucky to be on 30 mm-hmm. and DP to be on nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the SNP are looking like a block of, of 50 people. So it just, it, Ed Miliband to command a, a majority, need, you know, he's got better options. Basically. Yeah, and the key stat with the SNP isn't actually what the SNP get. It's about how many of Scotland's 59 seats will Labour and the SNP get. Because the SNP, because they're committed to voting against the Tories, are essentially substitute Labour seats. So the only thing the only real don't let Jim Murphy catch you saying that. <laughs> the only key fact about Scotland when it comes to the forecasters like me is how many Scottish seats will go to the Lib Dems or the Tories. That's what matters. Mm. The the SNP Labour battle is actually sort of secondary. I like your phrase. The idea that a Scottish seat might go to the Tories in this election, <laughs> some plucky Tory campaigner is going to win, and the shock result of the night: Glasgow East goes Tory. Well, the amazing thing is that the Tories could actually end up with three seats in Scotland. They could win Berwickshire and Dumfries, and add that to Dumfriesshire, which they won in 2010, and that could actually be maybe more than the Labour Party win on election night. Well, that would be a hell in of Scotland. A- yeah, hell of a, pr- a pr- prediction. Stephen, I'm going to ask you the obvious question, which is that um, Harry's assumptions rest on polling. We've had really good poll. Well, we've had really comprehensive polling. Uh, we obviously, in May 2015, uses a poll of polls plus feeding in Lord Ashcroft's constituency polls. How high is your level of confidence in the polls? Um, I mean, there has been a phenomenon since 2010 of the polls slightly overstating Labour support by a point or two. But actually, the important thing about the scenario, and I strongly urge, if you want to understand the numbers under the election, I strongly urge everyone to read it, is actually the numbers can still be bad for Labour 
and um, and they can still end up in government because because the or there are so few parties that want to pal up with the Conservatives. Um, the one interesting question, of course, is are the Ashcroft polls wrong? I'm always very dubious when political parties say our private polling says something different. However, when political parties start spending money in places which suggests which the Ashcroft polls suggest they shouldn't be, that's sort of the moment when you think, oh, well, maybe your private polling isn't just nonsense. It's one thing for the Lib Dems to release a slightly, to my eyes, slightly dodgy poll saying them ahead in um, Hornsey and Wood Green. But when you see Labour having to spend more money in that seat to hold it, the Lib Dems putting more money and activists into it, clearly that is more marginal than the Ashcroft poll would suggest. Ditto Hampstead and Kilburn, where sort of both sides are kind of making faces and going, it's a bit close. So, and, and these are two seats which Labour yeah. should easily be winning, yeah. according to our forecast. Uh, just to jump in here, I think that's true, and I think we will on the night see some seats we don't expect going the opposite way. But the point is that Ashcroft's polls uh, reinforce national polls. And so for them all to be wrong on a large scale would be very I odd. I mean, everyone's been lying consistently um, to but I think pollsters. The, yeah. The, I mean, the the best case scenario for the Conservatives is that the general election looks exactly like the European election, where Labour had these amazing nights in London, you know, winning places it had never won. You know, yeah, Labour didn't control Redbridge Council even uh, in sort of Tony Blair's peak years, and it won it last year. So... The kind of Tory hope is that they'll pile up these massive majorities, so they'll take places like Battersea and Ilford North, which you wouldn't expect them to do on a uniform swing. But just as in the Euros, they will do incredibly badly in places which ought to be Labour heartlands. So if the if Wales looks like the Euros, then um, the Labour Party will actually lose a seat. They'll lose a seat to Plaid Cymru because of the UKIP effect there. So, and they will lose seats in the Midlands and they ought to otherwise pick up from the Conservative Party. I mean, my instinct is that the Euros will be worse than the general for Labour purely because Ed had so many disastrous interviews during the European election. And so far, he said very well, he's on air during uh, the Jeremy Vine show. So far, I'm going to touch on the word, so far... Ed Miliband's uh, appearances on television and radio have helped rather than hurt the Labour Party. Well, I also think that all the stuff that's happening, this kind of weird Miliband fandom thing about the kind of like let's you know lots of let's face it, lots of teenage girls being ironic about fancying Ed Miliband. I'm just going to put irony. this out there that I don't think actual seventeen-year-olds are genuinely lustfully looking at Ed Miliband. But what that does is it neuters a very strong negative perception, this idea that he was the kind of, you know, nerdy geek that no one wanted to talk to who was a loner and a loser. If you can recast that as a, he's, you know, one of the ones that people like from the Big Bang Theory kind of geek, or, you know, the, even the IT crowd, he's the lumble mm. geek. You know, yes, he might be playing with his Rubik's Cube in the corner, but, you know, he's going to go on and fan Google one day. Um, then that, that does... That, that, if you're having a pr- presidential-style campaign, which is what the Tories wanted, they wanted it to be, a, like, who do you want in number mm-hmm. 10, that helps them in a And it's ironic, isn't it, that the Daily Mail seem to have sparked this with their front-page splash about all the women Ed once slept with in the early 2000s. Which seemed to sort of <laughs> Which is probably not coincide at all when kind everyone said, right, exactly. Yeah, I, I have to say, when I saw that pictures of, of him being mobbed by the hen knight at the weekend, the first thing I thought was not, okay, well, this is it. He's got a lucrative sideline in you know turning up to hen nights if it all goes horribly wrong. But it was the fact that clearly people are now there is now a, a celebrity effect around it. About like people have seen enough of him, they now know who he was, which I'm sure a lot of people didn't weren't really engaged in. And people also think that he might be someone quite important. That whole stat that you get from 
uh, US presidential debates where there's a big bump for the challenger the first time they stand at mm -hmm. a podium wearing the same suit, looking the same as the president, because people kind of go, hmm, okay, that person could be president. Mm. I think that might finally happen. He does have the aura. It's that phrase Philip Gould used of Tony Blair in about 1992. Yeah, the mark does look to be on him. He looks like the real deal. I think the fact he now has protection officers, he has the battle bus, he's on the debates, he has the kind of the accoutrement of a, of a prime minister. And so it kind of feels more believable. And at the same time, you've got a Cameron who, you know, you're getting Tory, quite well-respected Tory commentators like Tim Montgomery, Andrew Neil saying that they're hearing that people are upset because they feel like the fight has gone out of him. Like he's well, been, where is he? I haven't seen him for months. Prime Minister. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that's one of the things I was thinking about when we were talking earlier was the idea of like, when do we last talk about the deficit? It feels like, I mean, I'm sure it was only 10 days ago or something, but it feels like a really long time ago. Um, but yeah, so basically our takeaway is that everybody loves Ed Miliband. And also the interesting thing about Ed is that as more people look to the numbers and if the polls don't change very much, I think you'll only have a, an increase in the number of people saying Ed is the likeliest Prime Minister after May 7th, and that, that will create its own effect. That's the big mo. It's yeah. the big mo, right? And everybody who follows US politics, which is everyone in Ed Miliband's team, <laughs> will be really excited about it. I think the... Just to qualify all this, I think there is one strategy left for Cameron. I mean, I don't want to overplay how bad things are. Maybe there are more than one strategy, but there's one obvious one. And it's what I'm calling, and other people are calling, the Netanyahu strategy of squeezing that UKIP vote, which is something they've tried to do for a while. Um, so but this is the idea that in the closing days of the Israeli election, many Netanyahu started saying, you know, Arab Israelis were going to swamp, uh, or whatever the right. language is used, and, and it's the same kind of rhetoric you get with the kind of SNP uh, going uh, into sort of ransom. And what happened in Israel is you're not allowed to do polling up uh, in the five days before the election, something many people would probably want to introduce here. Um, but what happened in those five days is uh, Netanyahu's share of the vote went up, but the total right-wing share of the vote the sort of block of right-wing parties, didn't change. All that happened is he squeezed the extreme righties and got some of their votes. And that's the same thing that Cameron's hoping to do. He's hoping to squeeze that UKIP vote because of fears over the SNP and therefore do better in the key seats, which we've explained he really needs to win. And we've already seen that a little bit when the UKIP down on 13 in most of the polls, right? They are. 17 or so, they were. Absolutely, yeah. They're, they're going down. I think uh, as a group, they've gone down from about 17 to 11% in lots of those key seats. Um, but as yet, that's not enough because the interesting thing is some of those votes are going back to Labour because the UKIP vote is, is partly Conservative. It's about 40% comes from 2010 Tories, but about 20% of it or so comes from 2010 Labour voters. So and it's a lot not of those clear. 2010 Tories weren't, were 2005 Labour voters. Or 1997 yeah, yeah. Labour voters. So it's not clear, is it? Yeah, they're not. This idea that Tory MPs have that they're sort of Conservative voters on holiday just doesn't stack up. So, yeah. I mean, I think I think the last paragraph, which some people said was uh, Hedging's best, and I'm not just intending to blow smoke in your general direction, although I'm aware that's what this podcast is becoming, you know, summed it up. Just because we're saying there is a 70% chance... Uh, Ed Miliband becomes Prime Minister, doesn't mean the 30% chance can't happen. But if you throw a coin 10 times and it comes up heads, it doesn't mean that there wasn't a 50% chance sure. of it not. And I think that is, yeah, I think you're right. It's his last That's best throw. One of the things that has yeah. failed to happen totally in this election campaign is any kind of spontaneity. There have been very few moments that have really caught fire. There's been no you know, Gillian Duffy gate, no one caught on saying something stupid. There has been no one's punched anyone. And also yeah. interesting is that the Cameron, that was always the plan. You know, like this is exactly what the Tories wanted. They didn't want the debates, they didn't want any publicity, they wanted everything to just go on by. But yet, 
they never see that never seemed to make sense because they never seem to have the numbers in their favor and you know things aren't changing now and now it's them that need something to change and i also think that cameron also doesn't is not at his best when he looks angry on the mar show when he was i mean everybody everybody who's tory on my feet was saying how passionate he looked and i as trouble is i think it comes across as slightly stroppy yeah Um, i think it's where the fact that he is quite so posh, makes him look entitled. He has the vibe of someone complaining about bad service in a restaurant, which isn't good if your electorate is full of people who've had to, you know, cut down on the number of times they can go to And aren't voting for you because they don't think they you represent people like them and you, they don't, you don't represent ordinary people. Yeah, it's I mean, just a terrible yeah, look. Yeah, it's like if Ed Miliband went on TV and started sort of reciting tractor production statistics it would be playing exactly to the mm-hmm. worst things but it's also it's also interesting sorry Tim, to compare with the way he conducted himself during the Scottish referendum do you remember there's that moment where I don't know how impactful this was but he sort of took his jacket off rolled his sleeves up and said look this is about my country this isn't about the Tory party this is what really matters to me and that was quite widely praised that isn't what we've seen so far. We haven't seen that sort of calm that we sometimes see from Cameron. We've just seen anger. Garçon. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, on that note, I'll say thank you very much to Stephen and to Harry. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons.